0: Welcome back everybody to Lectures with Mr. Judy. That's right, we're back, another episode. So here we go. Today is gonna, the lecture is called Constitution Basics and this is the lecture designed for my US history classes. Um, I I do the same lecture next year in government, except I go deeper with the Constitution and get a little bit more specific with things but this is just more how does the constitution fit into history where the basic parts of it that we're going to see as we study history from this point on and how do we get to certain parts like say the civil war and what parts of the constitution are going to be in part important with the civil war um, maybe 1920s right civil rights movement like all these things definitely go back to the constitution and so Here we are. I have a few different sections that I'm going to split this up into. So the first section is going to be called Foundations in America. And this is just a little bit of the historical background. Just, just real quick and easy about why we needed a constitution. Then I'll get into the basics of the constitution. So that's going to be some historical facts about it, explaining the preamble, the articles and the amendments. And then a little bit about federalism because the Constitution sets up this idea as well. So, again, I'll do the basics part. And then after that, that's when we get into the three branches. And that's going to be the big chunk of the lecture today. And then we get into the last part, separation of powers, checks and balances, and then slavery. And we we have to talk about what the Constitution mentions with slavery. So, here we go. All right. Foundations in America. I'm going to take a look at just a few ideas right here. All right. Under the British crown, which was a constitutional monarchy, which means the king shared power by this point with the parliament. And there was something in place to kind of outline. All right. You have this power king and the parliament has this power. Um, The king is going to rule in a fairly autocratic manner and just kind of be this one man show. And, and Americans didn't really like that, right? We were represented here in the United States or, you know, America back then, right? We're represented by somebody in England who had little to no idea about the colonists' concerns, was not from America, you know, had been in England and just didn't really understand what was going on. And so as these new taxes are getting levied against us that I talked about in last lecture, like the sugar tax, and a Stamp Act, and a Townshend Act, and all these other things, right, we feel like the representation is not going our way, and that we're not really being heard, which is incredibly frustrating, right, so then we get to the Revolutionary War, we officially separate from the British with the Declaration of Independence, and the outcome of war severs all government structure with, with Britain, so now America is completely on its own and it has to figure out its power structure and its economics. And each state is basically acting as its own independent country, which is not great. And so this is this leads to the Articles of Confederation, which was a very weak, loose agreement among the 13 nation states. And it's not going to go well because the biggest thing is that there's really no unifying aspects, right? There's really no way to enforce what's said in Articles Confederation. And this is just a pendulum swing, right? We go from the British crown, essentially, in our view, having all absolute power and just being really mean to us. And we're not really having a good time with what's going on to the Articles Confederation, which is very... Hey, let's just keep it as loose and as open as possible and just not infringe on each other. The biggest problem out of this is the states are all going to carry their own war debt. And when states have debt and they need to raise more money, they typically raise taxes, which the populace, the citizens, they don't like. And when taxes are raised, you know, begrudgingly, we will pay as long as we can still have our job and we can still provide food for our families and we still have a roof over our head and that's what shays rebellion really starts to change right these farmers are losing their property to the banks and to the state because they can't repay and the state's like well hey but we need to repay these taxes and even though the rebellion was put down the social effect was so great because so many people in the 12 other colonies said Hey, look, that is me. That's exactly how I feel. I feel like I can't do what I need to. I feel like I can't pay my taxes. I feel like the, the bank and this, this new nation, everything I just fought for is now working against me, right? And so this is when you start to see the founding fathers again, start to kind of ruffle their feathers and, and, you know, start having these conversations. And they're hard. They are really hard conversations for the founding fathers to have of like, did we maybe screw this up? Because we don't want to admit if we screwed this up. Right. So we first have the Annapolis Convention to determine, hey, do we need to make some changes to the Articles Confederation? Maybe what are certain ideas? Problem is not very many people show up and the ones that do are like, yeah, it's time now. we really seriously take a look at what's going on. And so after Annapolis, there is a secret meeting that is going to be held in Philadelphia, which sounds kind of weird because i don't know how many secret meetings you can actually hold in philadelphia because it's a fairly large city especially in early america you're looking at it being one of if not the biggest city in early america and it's like hey we're gonna hold a secret meeting in plain sight and nobody's gonna know what but this is where patrick henry remember you know give me liberty give me death Kind of guy says, "I smell a rat," and it's it probably because he just didn't get invited. So, we meet in Philadelphia, right? These founding fathers—they lock themselves in a very tight and small room with a bunch of tables, and they they lock the windows down so nobody on the outside can hear. And they're sitting in there from May until September, and I just cannot imagine that was a very comfortable experience for those men. But what they produce is what we're after today, the Constitution of the United States. All right, so the second section is called Basics of the Constitution. So the Constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation as the official government of the United States, right? So the Articles of Confederation is gonna be counted as our first official government. The Constitution will be our second in our current form of government. The Constitutional Convention Took place from May 25th, 1787 to September 17th, 1787, in the city of Philadelphia. James Madison, future president, is considered to be the father of the Constitution largely because anything that we know about the Constitution mostly comes from his journals and he is credited with being the author of the Constitution. In order for the Constitution to replace Articles 9, out of 13 states, had to had to give it the thumbs up and make it a go. Um, that took place on June 21st, 1788. New Hampshire, yeah, New Hampshire, up in New England, was the ninth state to give it the thumbs up and officially make the Constitution go. There is one state that kind of created a lot of problems, and that would be Rhode Island. Rhode Island did not send any delegates to the Constitutional Convention, and Rhode Island is going to be the last state to officially ratify the Constitution. And it was kind of the original problem child of early American history. After, though, and you'll see this as we start getting into the early 1800s, early to mid-1800s, South Carolina is going to be more than happy to take up that problem child mantle which you know kind of sad because then we get to the civil war so the constitution is split into three parts the first part is the preamble yeah you know that right we the people of the united states in order to form a more perfect union yada yada, yada. i'm sure that maybe some of you guys memorized that for a teacher at some point right and you're probably thinking in your head right now oh yeah i remember that listen here's why you had to memorize it here's why the preamble is so important it gives the rationale, it gives the source of the power for the government of the United States, and that powers us, the people. That's why we say, we the people. That's what you need to know about the preamble. Power comes from the people. Next, the Constitution has seven articles. Think of them as chapters or sections, if you will, right? The first three are the ones that we really talk about the most, Article one is about the legislative branch or Congress, and it also contains what we call the elastic clause. The elastic clause says that Congress can pass all laws that are necessary and proper to the function of the United States. And that's gonna be something that we see a lot in our history where, where if the national government wants to build a road or give money to schools, right? We're going to use this to stretch the idea of laws about what is necessary and proper. Eventually, Chief Justice John Marshall is going to say, you know, really, it doesn't mean necessary and proper. It just means convenient. If you can make a law that is convenient for the American people, you get a pass it. Article 2 is about the executive branch. It is noticeably smaller. And then we get to Article 3 about the judicial branch Which is even smaller. And then we have Articles 4, 5, 6, and 7. And to be honest, we don't really need to worry about those at the moment. So we have the preamble, we have the articles, the third section amendments. All right, an amendment is an official change to the Constitution. And according to Article 5, the founding fathers left that open in order for something to happen in case we need to change the constitution in some way. So the first 10 amendments, the bill of rights, the things that you know, and the rights that you are probably most familiar with, right? The rights to freedom of speech and the establishment clause and the free exercise clause and the right to assemble and article two or amendment two, you know, about the right to bear arms. And then we get into unlawful search and seizure and no double jeopardy and due process. Due process is really, really big. And I'm going to speak more about that later when we actually get to the points where due process is going to come in play because it's a little bit of a difficult concept and maybe not something to just shoehorn in here and be like, oh yeah, this is it. You just have to understand it, you know? But anyway, we now have 27 amendments to the constitution and they have changed... Some things like slavery, for example, and voting age and the gender of who could vote and when the government officially starts. And there are some fun ones to look at. And there's just some like procedural kind of boring ones. But a lot of what we talk about in the sense of our own personal rights, these civil liberties and these civil rights, are rooted in the Constitution and these amendments. And so as we get to these parts in history, I'll bring that up and we'll do a little bit deeper dive. But right now I need you to know 27 amendments. The last thing I want to talk about is federalism. So federalism is talking about the division of power among different levels of government. So we have the national level of government, which for the most part we're kind of familiar with. We know that there's a president. We know that there's... Congress. We know that there's a Supreme Court, right? So we know that there's a national level. The state has its own version of that government. And so instead of a president, we call him a governor, right? We still have a state Congress or legislature, and we will have a state Supreme Court. And there are certain powers that the national government gets exclusively to do things like make treaties with other nations right there are things that the state exclusively gets to do like determine education issues and then there are some powers that both the state and the national government's get to share like taxing and and so this is where we start to get into a lot of fights like the civil war right and even even later on with the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, you do see national government versus state government. But not to be outdone, no, and also not to be forgotten, there is a government on your local level. And everybody always talks about the city first, but it's the counties, right? You have to remember that there is a county level government. Most counties have something called a county commissioner. And those county commissioners not only um, correlate actions between cities and whatnot and entire things for the county but they also really help you know guide the county and that could be with like local school boards and it could be with local businesses and making sure that everybody is doing the right things and in different states you know the counties might take on the policing for that entire area unless there's a bigger major city or we might have a county police force and then a smaller city police force So you have county commissioners and then we get to the city level where you have a mayor you have a city council or a community council of sorts and then you have your very low level courts that are going to be taken on by the county like maybe a traffic court or a juvenile court something like that so when somebody says federal or the feds they typically mean the national government and that was something i just wanted to make sure that you guys understood so whoo take a break Get some water and we're going to get to the big part, the branches. All right, the branches of government, the first branch is going to be the legislative branch. That's what Article One is about in the Constitution. And I know that I was taught this. I know that other teachers say where we have these three equal branches in government. We don't. All right. Congress was very clearly designed to be the most powerful branch of government, and it wasn't close. And in fact, Congress today, you could argue, holds, you know, even more power than it did in the late 1700s. But of course, we always look at the president as this person wielding, you know, all the power. But really, the amount of power that Congress has is just amazing. So. The legislative branch has a job. Its job is to make laws. And in this branch, we have the House of Representatives and the Senate. And this is taken from that English tradition of Parliament with the House of Lords and House of Commons, right? So our House of Representatives, it's the lower house. If you are an elected representative, you get to serve for two years. That's your term. And then you run for re-election. You can serve on limited terms. We do not have a limit on how many times you can serve. The, in order to get um, the math with the House of Representatives down, there's a couple things you need to understand. There is a law in place, and it's been there for 100 years, that says there will be 435 representatives. 435, that's your number. So then we divide that number up among the states, and that's based on population. So currently, for about every 710,000 people or so that your state has, you're going to get one representative. So the 435 representatives that we have, Utah currently has four of those 435 representatives. Right now, in District 1 is Rob Bishop, District 2 is Chris Stewart, and that's Davis County, um, where we're at right now, right, Chris Stewart. District 3 is John Curtis, and then District 4 is Ben McAdams. And that might change. So if you're still listening to this in a couple years, just realize that those names might change. But right now, that's what it is, right? The, The leader of the House of Representatives is a person or a title called the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Essentially, this person is the third most powerful person in the United States. According to the presidential line of succession, if the president dies and a vice president dies, it is the Speaker of the House of Representatives who would be next in line to become president. The current Speaker of the House of Representatives is Nancy Pelosi. And in order to become a representative, you have to be at least 25 years old. You have to have been a citizen for seven years and live in both the state and the area that you represent. So you can't like live in district one, but represent district two. They, they frown on that, right? And then of course, not commit any high crimes against the state. So that's what represents, right? 435, big body, lot of work, but these are supposed to be the people closest to us, the, the ordinary people. And these are the ones that we're supposed to have the most access to. All right, the Senate is a little bit simpler, right? That every state gets two senators. So there's 100 senators total. That number is locked in by the Constitution. Senators served for six years. And as we added more states throughout our history, we started to stagger the Senate. So every two years, a third of the Senate will turn over with the elections. Senators, like representatives, get to serve unlimited terms. The vice president is the leader of the Senate, and his whole job is to go bang a gavel and say, you know, we're now in session. Go make laws and discuss laws and debate them and do your thing, right? And in case there's a tie, then the vice president will cast the deciding tie-breaking vote. But should the vice president not be around, because maybe the president has them doing something else, the president pro tempore is the next guy. And if you don't get the spelling on that, that's okay, right? But the title is called President Pro Tempor. And this person is essentially the fourth most powerful person in the United States because if the president, the vice president, speaker of the House were to die, President Pro Tempor, you're next in line. And right now that would be Chuck Grassley, right? And he is from the Midwest. I believe he's from Iowa, and then we get into our own senators here in the state of Utah right now is Mitt Romney and Mike Lee. Those are our two. And so the Senate gets to have a couple powers that the House of Representatives doesn't. So for example, with federal positions, like if there was a Supreme Court justice that passes away and the president needs to install a new one, the Senate gets to confirm that person and the House of Representatives is left out. Conversely though, If we're going to create a tax law, that is a law that the House of Representatives gets to pass, not the Senate. So Congress will meet in the building called the Capitol in Washington, D.C. If you ever have the opportunity to go there, I suggest you tour. It is pretty cool. So there we go. Legislative branch. Make laws. And we have two different bodies to make sure that laws get made. The next one is the executive branch and the executive branch has a job, its job is to enforce laws. Now, the executive branch, we all know the face that runs a place, right? It's the president of the United States. But there's more than just the president of the United States that is a part of this branch, right? So it's the president, the vice president, the cabinet, the White House staff, and the executive office of the president. The, the only part I'm going to focus on right now, besides the president, will be the cabinet. So in order to be the president of the United States, you have to be at least 35 years old. You need to be a natural-born citizen of the United States, which in case you're ever wondering why Alexander Hamilton never became president of the United States, there you go. He was not a natural-born in a United States person. You have to live in the United States for 14 years of residency, not committing any high crimes. The president gets to serve a term of four years, and now, after an amendment to the Constitution, can serve two terms. The other part I wanted to mention in this process is something that President Washington created, and that would be the cabinet. Right now, we think of cabinets as like these things in our kitchen that hold, you know, our plates and our cups and our and our food and all the other things. Um, but the cabinet, in this point refers to different parts of the government. And so each, each one of these departments of government is going to be headed by a secretary, except the Department of Justice. That requires the attorney general. But we have things like agriculture and commerce and the Department of Defense, which is basically the military, right? Education, energy, health and human services. Homeland Security, Housing and Urban Development, or HUD is the nice little acronym there. Interior, Labor, State, Treasury, like I said, the Justice, Transportation, um, Veteran Affairs, right? And so these 15 different people will meet with the president and advise him on matters. So, for example, the Department of Defense representing the military, they will bring in military officials and say, Hey, Mr. President, here's how we would advise you to take actions on this, right? Agriculture will talk about the farmers and a current food supply and what can be done and maybe, you know, trade with other nations and what are we sending out? What are we bringing in? Is what we're bringing in outselling our farmers and, you know, all that. Like They do a lot of, lot of stuff and the executive branch, its whole job is to enforce laws. So if you... If you automatically think like, oh great, well they're the police. I mean you're not totally wrong in that assumption. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they are there to to enforce the laws and make sure things are carried out. So the president will live in the White House and obviously has to help broker deals with Congress because the president will promise all sorts of wonderful things as they are running um, to become president of the United States. And so the president and Congress, their relationship is really, really crucial and vital. And we'll see where times where that works well, and then times where it doesn't work so well. Like, say Andrew Johnson after the Civil War and almost getting impeached, or maybe Andrew Jackson in eighteen in eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties, kind of looking at like, hey, I'm the president, and you will you will do my bidding. But then you look at friendlier relationships like. President Franklin Roosevelt in passing all the New Deal programs. And even President Lyndon B. Johnson. A little bit of tension there, but he was able to pass through the Great Society programs and a lot of civil rights legislation after the death of President Kennedy. And so that's going to be something that we're going to keep an eye on as well. Alright, the last branch, the judicial branch. Its job, you tell us what the laws mean. And this interpretation of laws is really hard to kind of wrap your mind around. So let me give you an example real quick. And it's from my favorite court case of all time, Tinker versus Des Moines school district. So we think we know what free speech means, right? I can say whatever I want. Well, during the Vietnam war, Mary Beth Tinker, her brother and her best friend were suspended from school because they wore armbands to protest the Vietnam war. And the school that they attended had said, you're not allowed to protest the war on our campus. We don't want to create any unrest or riots or anything. And so Mary Beth, her brother and her friend were all suspended because of these armbands. Well, there was a court case and that court case went up and went up and went up and went up and it eventually got all the way to the Supreme Court. Now remember the Supreme Court's job is to interpret laws. And so the Supreme Court actually interprets speech in this point and says, there's two different types of speech. There is this expressive speech, right? Like this verbal, the the things that come out of our mouth, right? There's that type of speech. But then there's that symbolic speech, right? Um, Symbolic with a hand gesture, symbolic by the clothes that I wear, symbolic by the, you know, maybe actions that I do, right? And so the Supreme Court said, it's a peaceful protest, right? Their armbands aren't disrupting class. They're fine. You don't need to suspend them for that because that is a version of freedom of speech. And so that's an example of interpreting the law. Now, who makes up the judicial branch? The Supreme Court and all other federal courts. There are other federal, there are other courts, um, like a court of appeals for example we've broken the United States into 13 different sections and if you feel like your state supreme court got something wrong you can appeal to a federal court right there's there's military affairs which if you've, you've seen the movie a few good men that comes up there's a tax court there's an international court to deal with relations between us and other countries and if there's a dispute so there's a few different other courts that exists just besides the Supreme Court. But we're going to focus on the Supreme Court. Most other federal courts only have three judges, and they sit and they'll decide the law. The Supreme Court, though, has nine. And it's important to notice that in both examples, there's an odd number. that odd number is to make sure we don't have a tie, so that we can actually decide important cases. The justices are nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate, as I mentioned previously. Unlike the presidency and Congress, you serve for life or until you decide to retire. Right, So it's kind of a cool appointment and a little different appointment. The Supreme Court is a final authority on all items of legal matters. It is headed by a chief justice. The chief justice is John Roberts, and he has been in for a little bit now. As far as the federal courts go, we have 94 district courts, we have these specialty courts that I mentioned, and we have 13 appeals courts. So even if you feel like your, your court at the state level didn't quite get there, you will go to one of these 94 courts and then a the 13 appeals court and then the Supreme Court. So in a year, the Supreme Court gets around 2,000, 4,000 requests or more uh, for cases to be heard and will grant somewhere around 100 to 400 to hear, actually hear. Okay, we made it through the biggest section. Woo! you're doing great. Maybe hit pause and get up, move around, just kind of shake it off, get it get ready, all right? We got two quick sections to get through and then we'll be done. All right, separation of powers and checks and balances. Separation of powers means each branch of government has its own rights and responsibilities, right? We have divided into different areas and and do your job kind of thing. Checks and balances is where if one branch feels the other branch has not done its job, that there is a way to then go after them. So, for example, the president can nominate justices to the Supreme Court. If Congress says, you're just nominating your best friend, the person shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. Remember the Senate gets to confirm that justice. If the president, for example, isn't isn't upholding the office and is engaged in treason or bribery or other high crimes as defined by Congress, the Congress can then impeach them, right? If a law is passed, somebody can sue, and claim that the law is unconstitutional. And if that's the point, then you go to the courts, right? And so there's always ways for one branch to make sure another one is not getting too powerful, and that's called checks and balances. All right, the last thing. Here we are. Slavery. Slavery was a really interesting topic at the Constitutional Convention because slavery could have been outlawed. with such a strong presence of the southern states and such a reliance on slave labor, we weren't ready to give it up. And so there are two issues regarding slavery that are going to be hotly debated at the Constitutional Convention. The first one is the economic issue. The South is clearly, at this point in time, in the late 1780s, wealthier than the North. And a lot of it is largely because of slave labor being able to go and take care of the fields, harvest the crops, and, and even eventually start to manufacture the crops, like with a cotton gin, for example, and kind of send cotton out that doesn't need to be plucked of seeds, but now is like ready to be spun and, and kind of taken that part of the process. So as the compromise is going to be kind of made, North makes it stand that they do not like slaves. Slaves are a part of the Northern life, but not a very strong and distinct part like it was in the South. And so the North is starting to already move towards a little bit more industrial and manufactured type mindset. And the compromise is this. You can import slaves until the year 1808. In 1808, you are no longer allowed to bring slaves into the country. The idea is is that at this point, slave labor will just eventually go away, starting in 1808 with, because if you're not allowed to bring slaves into the country, then slavery should just not be a thing after like a generation, once the slaves die out. The thing was the constitution was left vague. And because of that said, oh, well, I can't bring them in from outside the country anymore. I'll just make my slaves have kids, and then I'll just enslave their kids. And that's exactly what happened. And, of course, you have the illegal slave trade that's still going to go on and maybe a lack of enforcement against it, right? But this was the law. 1808 was the year that you could no longer import slaves. Okay, let's talk about the representational issue. So remember, in Congress, in order to determine how many representatives your state gets it is based on your state population again the north is looking at the south and says if we let them count slaves they're going to kill us because we're not going to have enough people to compete with what the south wants and so whatever the south wants the south will get the hypocrisy in this is of course the south wants to count slaves as people but they don't treat them like people. They don't give them the same rights as normal citizens. And we'll see that later with, say, the Dred Scott case. And it's, there's a fair amount of hypocrisy in this. So, of course, the three-fifths compromise is what is reached, right? A stake accounts 60% of its slave population as towards representation for the House of Representatives. And so this would still give the South the initial advantage, But as expansion is going to take place, you will see the power will shift to the north fairly quickly and is one of the major factors of the Civil War. Okay, I'm proud of you. You made it. You made it through episode two. This is amazing, and I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you spent the time with me, and if you're not asleep yet, good job, you. Love you guys. Thank you.